Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I'm joined by Keith Knight. Keith is the managing editor at the Libertarian Institute and also the host of the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast. And today, he's here to talk about an excellent new book he's put together called The Voluntarist Handbook. Keith, welcome to the show. Tom Mullen, thank you for having me, sir. I'm so glad that you reached out to me. I did not know you were working on this book, The Voluntarist. I'll never be able to say that right. Voluntarist. Voluntarist Handbook. Thank you. And I've had a chance to go through quite a bit of it. But before we get into some of the details, why don't you just give an overview of two things? Why did you put this together? And what would readers expect to find when they crack open this fine book? I put this together because I wanted to give people a collection of works from who from people who are my favorite authors and introduce them to these ideas with some of the best minds that don't just give you bullet points of why freedom's important or why capitalism in a free market sense creates a great deal of wealth. I wanted to give people a principled understanding with authors that show you how to think. For example, chapter 42 is just a list of 14 logical fallacies. So what people can expect to get is hearing the ideas presented in such a way that teaches you how to think. So even if you disagree with the conclusion of the book with The idea that all things should be achieved in life voluntarily as opposed to violently, and the biggest purveyor of violence is the state. Even if you end up disagreeing with that, you can still appreciate a lot of the wisdom from people like Joe Sobrin, who's in here, senior editor of the National Review for 18 years. After a lifetime of being a conservative, he became a voluntarist or people on the left like Sheldon Richman has a chapter titled Social Cooperation. You have all these people from different starting points coming to the same conclusion going back to the year 1850, I think is the earliest entry I have all the way up to uh, this year with original pieces from people like Shepard Oakley, who was formerly a police officer and now a voluntarist or a guy named Shane Hazel, formerly a Marine now a voluntarist and anti-war activist. 
So people can expect to get a really deep understanding of the values of freedom from many, many different points of view. And I think one of the things that you encounter a lot, I mean, obviously somebody has to have at least some curiosity about our way of thinking before they're going to put the time in to read the book. But I think what I run into a lot, and I'm sure you do, is that people have a genuine interest and almost a wish that they could accept some of our ideas and then they have these hangups. And what I found is the book does a great job of not just presenting the ideas philosophically, systematically, but as you just said, knocking down some of those hangups that even an honest person might just not be able to get past unless they hear something laid out for them. One of the things about the book, when I saw the title, the first thing I couldn't help but think about was Michael Malice's surprisingly successful anarchist handbook. How is this book different from that? And how is it similar? It's similar in that it's primarily a collection of other people's works sort of rotating around this idea of voluntarism historically to the present day. Malice's book focuses more on anarchy in the sense that a lot of anarcho-communists were the original anarchists and moves it up to the present day where it's people like David Friedman and Murray Roth pushing these ideas more so than anyone else. Or Malice might be the most famous anarchist outside of Noam Chomsky who I don't even consider one because he supports central banking, he supports state education, he supports gun control, and and then says, oh, by the way, I'm for the little guy. So that, <laughs> uh, that might make Malice the uh, most popular anarchist on the planet. So it's similar in that it's a collection of other people's works. It's different because mine focuses a lot on economics. For example, we have a section that cites quotes from economics in one lesson by Henry Hazlitt, sort of making it easier to approach. We question the idea of equality in chapters like, is equality a worthy goal? Or even if you have that idea, why you should embrace free market anarchism. So my book explicitly rejects not left anarchism, but what could be called anarcho-communism. The main reason we do this is because communism in, if you have a society that's communist without a state, people can say, well, that's anarchy. The reason I would not consider that anarchist, even though historically that was the case, is because they would criminalize capitalist acts between consenting adults. So if anarchism means no rulers, no person has the right to rule over another, you can still engage in voluntary contracts. The communist does not allow someone like me, if I want to work at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, if I am being exploited in their sense, and by that they simply mean you make more money off of me than you give me, well, then they're claiming to be the rulers of me or the rulers of other people. So because communists forbid uh, capitalist acts between consenting adults, I uh, reject communism as a legitimate form of anarchy in this book. Malice does not make that distinction. I'd say that's the biggest difference. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I think we've always been suspicious that if the anarcho-communists got their way, that things would not remain voluntary very long, or they never really would be voluntary because it's like the old joke about the haircut. What's the difference between anarcho-communism and anarcho-capitalism? 
Well, if it's really voluntary, about six months, right? <laughs> that's yeah. that's about how long you can go with communism before things start to break down. And economists commonly call this the day two problem. So this is let's take everything and redistribute it equally among all 7 billion people on the planet. That is what you do. And then on day two, well, even minute two of that, people start making decisions and people start making different decisions. Some will gamble, some will invest, some will save, some will spend on retail, some will put it into their house. And automatically you have people that are going to have uh, different ends in life. Therefore, they're going to have different results. So the communists can't just look at this inequality of outcome and say, I can now see who's been exploited and who are the exploiters. That is not a proper way to approach things. There's an article in here, it's by Walter Williams, discussing the moral versus economic case for free markets, where he talks about the importance of a process. So you could take the game of poker. I think he uses that example, where some person has a lot of money and someone else has very little. Uh, is this fair or unfair? Well, that does not give us the amount of information we need to determine whether something's fair. If some has a lot more than another, Joe Rogan has a lot more viewers than I do, if you can believe it on my show. Is that fair? Well, if he's conscripting people into listening to him, well, that would be unjust. But if it's a process of people picking and choosing where they want to spend their time, there's nothing unjust about that at all. So how this applies to the poker question is, were the rules set out beforehand and were they equally explained? Did one person cheat at the expense of others based on these rules, which were agreed upon ahead of time? So it's not that we look at the conclusion to determine what is just or unjust. What we need to do is look at the process of how this came about. That's a much better way. That's another thing both statists and communists refuse to do is look at the process. They just look at an outcome and say, this is either good or bad without understanding. Is it the result of people's preferences or was it the result of some people? issuing threats of violence against others, as is almost always in the form of statism. It's funny because they're always bringing up billionaires and it never occurs to them that some people don't want to be a billionaire. I don't want to be a billionaire. I know what it would take to be a billionaire and whether or not I have the ability, even if I have the ability, I don't want to do what it takes. I don't want to be that single-minded and devote my life, my nervous system 24 seven to developing a PowerPoint and Excel or whatever other product the current billionaire crop has developed. I'm interested in other things. And some people are interested in things that don't even make you upper middle class. And I'm not saying that that's the whole story, but just never enters anybody's mind that there's trade-offs that some people and I guess what I'm thinking also in the back of my mind is all this about not enough women in STEM academia and, and studying science and math. And it never occurs to them, well, maybe they just don't want to. Until you ask them about not enough men in preschool teaching positions, where 97% of the people are women when it comes to teaching preschool. So, of course, they never care about you know, but people's choices. Or maybe they do and just haven't read the Voluntarist Handbook yet and will be enlightened very soon. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts a couple of ways by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month, 
and get machine transcripts of every episode, as well as access to my members-only MeWe group, or become an all-access patron and get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos. You can even become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus a free copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there, and you can find links to all of the above at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. Mentioning billionaires is important because what you'll often get from people like on MSNBC is they'll say, are billionaires good or bad? Not making the critical distinction that Tom Woods makes on page 79 of the Voluntarist Handbook, where he says, we have to differentiate between political entrepreneurs and market entrepreneurs. The political entrepreneur succeeds by using the implicit violence of government to cripple his competition and harm customers. The market entrepreneur, on the other hand, makes his fortune by providing consumers with products they need at prices they can afford and maintains and expands his market share by remaining innovative and responsive to consumer demand. So they don't differentiate between people who get there voluntarily and people who get there violently. That's literally like not differentiating between kidnapping and going over to someone's house for dinner or (laughs) someone assaulting someone and two people agreeing to have a boxing match. They say, oh, same thing. Someone's getting punched. Floyd Mayweather punches someone is just like me going and punching a random person on the street. The fact that they don't differentiate between voluntary accumulations of money and involuntary, it just staggers the mind. And that's another thing Chomsky does all the time. Yeah. If only Mayweather wanted to punch one of us. I mean, oh, (laughs) please. That That would be a nice retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. You provide a list of definitions in the beginning. And I want to get to a specific chapter, but you've got volunteerism and anarchy. What's the difference between the two things? Basically, the starting point of an anarchist society or anarchy would be a social system which generally recognizes no person having the right to rule or forcibly dominate anyone else. Whereas the voluntary basically says things should be, your ends in life should be achieved on a voluntary basis. The reason I think these are more or less the same thing is I think they're complementary, that living in a state of anarchy would include people engaging in voluntarist acts between consenting adults. So it could very well be that the true understanding of these terms is to almost use them interchangeably. And maybe that makes it redundant or that's just my self-serving explanation of it. But my true understanding is anarchism is a society where there are simply no rulers. No person has the right to do something that anyone else doesn't have the right to have. This doesn't mean no rules. It doesn't mean you can't make rules about your house, your business, or 
your life. It simply means no person has the right to coercively control the life of someone else. Whereas voluntarism, I want I want to actually give the explicit definition used by Auburn Herbert, the founder of voluntarism. He says, voluntarism is the moral position which maintains that no peaceful person can justly be submitted to the control of others in the absence of his or her own consent. So that is the exact definition. And while we're at it, I might as well define anarchy from the Greek prefix an, meaning without, in the absence of, and the Greek noun archon, master or ruler. Anarchy does not mean without rules. It literally means without rulers, without masters. So that is the technical clarification. I get that some people will disagree with me, but that's why I wrote the book so we could have the conversation. Is it fair to say that voluntarism is the moral principle and anarchy is the political system that's based on that moral principle? Is that in the ballpark? Yes. I guess even you could call it the political system if you're using it in the sense of the polis is simply people interacting in society. But of course, it would necessarily mean without politicians or politics. So yes, that is a good way to do it. Let's cut that out and pretend that I gave that answer for my answer. that's That's a very good way to put it. Well, it's a good segue into this chapter I found very interesting because I hadn't read it before. And here we go. Chapter five, do we ever really get out of anarchy? Now, of course, the first reaction to that is, of course, there's never been an anarchist society and everywhere we look, there's a government in place. So what is he getting at there? Alfred Kuzan is the author on this one. Yeah, he works at New Mexico State University. In this, he says he defines anarchy as a social order without government. What he's basically saying is that if we have this principle, you can't have people like Tom Mullen and then Keith Knight that they can't just interact voluntarily because what if they get in a fight? They'll go to war. They have a conflict over scarce resources. What you need is a government above them, which sort of allows them to sometimes work through it. Sometimes it works against them. But this is what stops a war of all against all is this government, which Uh, eliminates what would be constant conflict between these people. He then says, well, if we have that principle, what we need to have is a world government where there's only one government, because right now there exists a state of anarchy between America and Mexico and Argentina and Australia. There's no United Nations that has the right to coercively rule both of those zones. So in relation to one another, they are in a state of an- anarchy. Brazil and Britain are in a state of anarchy because they don't have one overarching rule. So this means that under no system of social cooperation could there even be something like a government, because even if you had, let's say that we elect Klaus Schwab to be leader of planet Earth, then who governs Klaus Schwab? He is in a state of anarchy with relation to anyone else, because there's no one above him. So we constantly have anarchy in different aspects of the world, just as we constantly have different aspects of coercion. It could be your neighbor's a thief, or there's a local mafia, or there's a state, uh, usually the most common form of theft. Even civil asset forfeiture has exceeded the amount of stolen property in, uh, in America, not to mention the concept of things like taxation, which you could categorized as theft simply because it's some people claiming the right to 
achieve monetary notes, taking money with the threat of caging people if they don't chip in. So like certainly if if Walmart or any other organization did that, we'd say that there are a bunch of thieves who need to be put out of business, but the government routinely does it. So certainly we could call that theft. So Kuzan is simply saying, for the same reason, we shouldn't support a world government, we shouldn't support a city government, because in both cases, it's some people claiming the right to rule over others. Now, John J. Mearsheimer, a very popular political scientist, he actually went viral recently because of a 2015 speech he gave saying that the way the U.S. is acting now with Russia is going to cause a war in Ukraine with NATO expansion. So that was very interesting. He wrote a book titled Why Leaders Lie, and in it he says politicians always lie both on a national and international basis, but – There is significantly less lying on an international level because there is not an implicit assumption that they're just that the politicians are just taking care of us and in our interest. So there's less trust among these people on an international level. Therefore, there's more of an incentive to tell the truth because you know that these people would happily expose you as a liar. Whereas domestically, politicians are much more likely to lie to their base. Constantly, they can't almost get a sentence out without lying because there's that level of trust. So on an international level, because of the anarchy between countries, politicians are much more honest than they otherwise would be than when they're in control of a state apparatus and have citizens or subjects, as you will. So the reason that's such an important concept to grasp is because it goes to show that whether you think human beings are good or bad, in any sense, or mostly evil or mostly good, in any sense, the anarchist system creates a disincentive for people to act poorly because you have the right to disassociate with them. And having something like a state allows the most evil people to first occupy that position and then use it to achieve ends that they'd never be able to achieve in the voluntary sector if people didn't imagine they had this double moral standard. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think of with a girl like you? So it causes the same person, Joe Biden, to be more honest 
in an anarchist level when he's acting internationally and less honest when he's acting domestically. This is so important because Mearsheimer is so big. So coming to this conclusion that the importance of anarchy and in international relations leads to something very beneficial, like getting politicians to be honest, that was so vitally important. So that is a general understanding of Kuzan's thesis, along with how it's been proven correct with political science from Mearsheimer to this day. It's kind of funny. I wasn't familiar with that. I've read his tragedy of great power politics, where he has similar ideas, but wrote the book for a different reason. But it kind of sounds a lot like the arguments we've made for a long time that, hey, lefties, if you don't like monopolies, why do you like this one? Why wouldn't all the evils of a corporate monopoly, which in reality has never existed unless it was government granted, but you know, all of a sudden that goes out the window. But really, he's kind of on the same wavelength there with us domestically. I don't know how far he'd go that way, but that monopolies just don't work, right? And he's kind of making a case for competition in a political way. But anyway, back to this book. So there's a lot of different roads to go down with some of these different authors. There's a lot of cases for the free market, which really the free market to me is everything. It goes beyond just pure buying and selling of physical resources. But you've got another chapter here by a guy named Roderick Long, and I'm trying to find it again. There were 10, 10 responses to 10 objections to libertarian anarchism. So it's <laughs> chapter 22, page 116. So you've got chapter 22 by a gentleman named Dr. Roderick Long, and he says the case for libertarian anarchism responses to 10 objections. Can you give us a few of your favorites and how he knocks them down? He starts with the assumption that what government is, the defining characteristic of this thing called government, is that it is a monopoly on the use of violence. Anything else, the schools, the roads... Any other organization can and historically has performed those sort of functions. So the Catholic Church has a lot of schools. They're not government. The Khan Academy has a lot of education that this is not what makes a state a state. So he defines the state as one group that has a territorial monopoly on products and services or on resources, rather, that they didn't acquire through homesteading or voluntary exchange. So immediately we have a problem because we have a monopoly, just as we would not want a monopoly in shoe manufacturing because we'd get lower quality and higher prices than we otherwise would under competition. That's the same reason we wouldn't want a government monopoly in providing security, something so important that it shouldn't be left up to politicians or their employees, something so important that it needs to be brought into the area of competition and free exchange. This way, if you're not happy with the service, you can disassociate with that organization. So that is how he starts out. He also mentions the Thomas Hobbes argument that government is necessary for cooperation. It's almost a contradiction in terms saying <laughs> that we need a lack of cooperation in order for people to cooperate, which brings to mind do people cooperate just because they want to be nice with each other and it's something that was sort of imposed on us by a third party? As Ludwig von Mises makes the case very persuasively that people cooperate and act voluntarily in their own self-interest and they use this division of labor to achieve their ends more effectively than they could if they just did something by themselves. Look at this pen. 
I can't imagine how long this thing would take for me to make. I would spend years trying to make the outside. I don't even know how ink is made. So that's one thing, let alone the microphone, the computer. So this is an incentive that people always have to cooperate. Again, when it comes to the state, this same principle applies where they're actually creating a disincentive for people to cooperate. Look at how many wars are fought. Thomas Hobbes would say that it's the people of France who just deeply want to go to war with the people of Germany, and the only thing holding them back is governments trying to solve things peacefully. The reality is it's always the opposite. It's always of a few people in government wanting to go to war with a few other people in government and mostly using conscription or at least theft-funded soldiers to achieve their ends. So it's not that anarchy is a war of all against all. It's much more likely that government is a war of all against all. You also have a concept called the state is the health of war, where you'll commonly hear war is the health of the state, meaning governments can get away with things in wartime, in a state of war where people are scared that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get away with. But also the state is the health of war in the sense that if I don't have to bear the cost, I can flip the bill to the taxpayers and I have the ability to conscript people, well, then I'm more likely to go to war. And if I'm not going to be held responsible in a court of law for any murders I commit, well, these three pillars are making it much more likely for wars to occur than it would if there was no moral double standard, if you didn't have the right to conscript, as both Ukraine and Russia are engaged in conscription at the moment. And uh, you, you had to fund it, not yourself, but you had to fund it through voluntary contributions, meaning either the people who were being threatened were funding or, I don't know, some sort of go fund me. Then again, you had people giving like $100 million to Trump just to recount the votes and to stop the steal. So don't tell me that we can't voluntarily raise a ton of money if there's a genuine threat. But government has the opposite incentive to constantly keep creating threats. So Roderick Long's objection to Thomas Hobbes's idea that, I mean, I can't imagine the average person knows Hobbes, but that goes to show how powerful the idea is. So many people share that unfounded assumption because he made it so popular in his book, Leviathan. Let me see if there's anything else in this chapter specifically where he is discussing. Oh, well, Ayn Rand says, private protection agencies will battle, which I got into before. This is so common where the person advocating for government will have a critique of anarchism, which actually is legitimate. It is possible for private protection agencies to battle. So could we think of a hypothetical example where governments could potentially go to war with one another? I mean, to ask that is to reveal what a ridiculous question it is, as if the First World War never took place. I mean, if you just looking at the side of France alone in one of our favorite books, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War. In the First World War, France lost 1.3 million people. So looking at the devastation that governments cause, so commonly it doesn't even come to mind when we're talking about the great inconveniences of the world. And the status is still hung up on bad working conditions in places where working conditions wouldn't be approved if you usher in a government. So for the same reason we should have standards for protection agencies, we should also have those standards for government. So Long is very good 
at getting you to apply these principles consistently to both the private sector and the violent sector of statism. So that's why I think that was such a great chapter. I'm so glad you did bring up Thomas Hobbes. I actually wrote a book of my own called Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From? and spent a great deal of time talking about the influence of Hobbes on conservatism, Hobbes and Burke specifically, and then some other people as well. And I want to get to the chapter right after the one you just talked about, but you also talk about John Locke, or you have your writers that you've brought together. And I don't think Locke gets enough attention. I've always said that Locke took the ball from the goal line to the, the opponent's 10. <laughs> and then yeah. Murray Rothbard ran it into the end zone because Locke established so many of our principles clearly. And then of course, right at the end, he fumbles the ball saying, but we're going to have to have the state to guarantee any of this. But that idea that without the power of the state, we'd all be at war with each other. I believe that that is the fundamental basis for conservatism and that all the other aspects of conservatism, like preserving longstanding traditions and the veneration for the police and the army, those are all means towards that end of this savage that has to be contained. So we don't think that way. We don't think that people are angels either. We believe they're capable of both and that incentives matter. So maybe the last chapter, because we can only talk about so many, and I want people to read the book, this one by Joe Sobron, he calls himself the reluctant anarchist, and I think he's coming from the conservative perspective. What's he have to say there? So in the second portion of this essay, he mentions the fact that if government is you know, the source of stability, yet governments have created mass murder on an unbelievable scale, should we question whether or not they really are the best mechanism to keep us safe? Now, with, that doesn't necessarily get at the heart of the issue because you can always say, well, we just need to keep reforming it. There was never a plane until the Wright brothers gave us a plane. And well, there was never a peaceful government until we finally found out how to work it. So he's just looking at that from a utilitarian basis. But earlier in this article, he talks about the Supreme Court and the idea if we need a government because we need laws to be objective, you can't have Tom Mullen doing his own thing, some other guy doing something else. We need a common set of objective laws that can't be, you know, rendered to opinion or subjective preference. He says, well, the people in the Supreme Court currently sitting in the court do not agree on what the law says. Literally, there was just a major vote, I think the Dobbs opinion or whichever one it was, where some people on the Supreme Court, very similar, I mean, these are the most similar nine people you could have, went to Ivy League, studied law, are lawyers appointed by presidents. They don't agree on what the law says. So one, that takes away from the idea of objective law. Two, the concept that the Constitution is very similar to like a general contract. He says there's a vitally important difference between the Constitution and this social contract rather than a contract that, say, you and I would have if we were in an employment agreement. So if you and I have a contract, you send me copies of your show and I'll send you 20 bucks. That is a give and take contract where there's something called consideration, getting something in exchange for something else. Whereas the state, so so it, it would be assumed if you don't send me the files, I don't have to send you the money. And if I don't send you the money, well, you don't have to send me these files. That's very clear on what that contract is. Now, when it comes to this constitution, 
giving the government a monopoly on the interpretation of this constitution makes it more or less invalid. It allows them to get away with whatever they want. Famous example is the Commerce Clause uh, about making uh, the state having an obligation to make trade between the states regular, to regulate interstate commerce, not necessarily control it. It was actually used in one example to stop someone from growing food on their own land because that would affect the amount of trade that would go between states. So you could make any interpretation of any of these laws. The reason is, is because this social contract is not a contract by any means. If you don't pay the state in taxes, they do have the right to put you in jail. But that's okay because in exchange, they provide you with a service called, let's say, police protection. But what happens if they don't hold up their end of the bargain? What if there's a terrorist attack and 3,000 people die? Well, what we know happens is the approval of the president goes to 91% and the government gets <laughs> more power <Right>. and <laughs> more influence than they ever had before. It's not like 9-11 happened and then Bush went to jail and then Cheney went to jail because they didn't hold up their end of the contract. If you don't hold up your end, you go to jail. They don't hold up their end and they get medals of freedom. So this is in no way a contract. This is simply a justification to get people to assume the legitimacy of rule that would be clearly seen as parasitic in any other circumstance. So that's how Soburn went from th – that was his understanding. He also uses the example of the Civil War. That Look, either the states have the right to secede or they don't. He did this because he was friends with Murray Rothbard, and he got sort of interested, and then Rothbard passes away. And he was convinced by a guy who worked with Rothbard at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Hans Hermann Hoppe. That was the person who made him an anarchist, finally. So this is so interesting that a guy who was a senior editor of this big conservative think tank with William F. Buckley, not a, a think tank, but a column. He was a columnist for, gosh, I think like 30-something years before and after. He said, you know what? I missed something. And not my entire foundations are incorrect. It's just I didn't apply these things I truly felt consistently. So that's why I think the reluctant anarchist is so important. Thank you for bringing that one up. That was the hardest to get a copyright permission from. So uh -huh. I, I, I try to plug it as much as I can. Well, the left is so off the reservation, not so right now that it almost seems ridiculous to say, but I've often thought that conservatism is in its own way more dangerous than progressivism because they do have some of the, they're in the ballpark with us on private property and some things, but there's a fundamental problem with conservatism. So I think it can suck a lot of people in who like the idea of self-ownership or the free market into something that only leads to absolute government power in the end. So it's refreshing to see a guy like Sabran say, you know what? Look, I know this better than you do, conservatives. I wrote the book, literally. Yeah. And I've come to the conclusion that this is not the right path. Uh, there's a ton more here. What do we got? Like 30 some chapters or is it 40? I, I can't remember. 50 chapters in oh, all 50. Okay. Take so, it back. Reread the book. I can't be a guy who just has 30 chapters in a book. The goal is that I don't want to lose people's interest. I want them to say, here are the main points on this topic. And if you're losing interest, 
go to the next one. And they don't have to be read in order. That's the important thing. So if you're just curious on what we have to say about healthcare, check out Roderick T. Long's second article, How Go- How Government Solved the Healthcare Crisis. Of course, a joking article. But, th- but this is another case. You have a government saying, look, we can't just have this anarchy in healthcare. We need the Food and Drug Administration. That was the early 1900s. And they say, well, we also need to help the elderly. So we need Medicare and we have to help the poor. So we need Medicaid. And instead of reforming those items or admitting they didn't work, they always have new programs. They have the Affordable Care Act, which, of course, increased health care prices because it diminished the amount of competition that would have existed in the market. So it's never like, hey, you guys lied. Now you have to go to jail. Because you committed fraud on a large scale, as they, of course, should be imprisoned for, for, for doing something like that, just as any CEO should be jailed if they commit fraud on, on such a scale. So, again, because we have this moral double standard that they can violate the principles of voluntarism, no one else can in your everyday life. It's you don't get to enslave people. You have to employ them voluntarily. If they quit. Tough luck. Your girlfriend wants to break up with you. I'm sorry if you're totally depressed and it ruins your life. She still has the right to do it. Oh, but there'd be chaos and every relationship would end and kids would grow up with no parents and only gays would be adopting these kids and they'd turn out to be crazy. Tough. You you need to solve that problem voluntarily if it is a problem. Of course, they always exaggerate these. So this is how violating the principles of voluntarism can come back to bite you. What you said about conservatives is also important because I try to open the chapter. I try to keep the introduction to one page. When you look at the conclusions that a lot of conservatives come to, you can say, well, that is very far. For example, I mean, I heard Ted Cruz defending Guantanamo Bay the other day. People (laughs) there without trial indefinitely, and Ted Cruz is defending it. I mean, it's just, it's so sickening. However, if the average conservative, if you ask them, do you believe in the biblical commandments, thou shall not murder and thou shall not steal, versus do you also support going into Iraq? Do you support tariffs? Well, they can sort of superficially support Iraq or going into Iran or Gitmo, but compare that to how they really feel about thou shall not murder and thou shall not steal. You can really take principles they already believe in and apply them consistently with progressives who say, I really believe in equality and the dignity of the individual so they can get the most out of the human experience. Well, there's nothing more unequal than some people saying, I get to take money by force. No one else has the right to. I can murder people and I just call it foreign policy. So that's okay. If you murder someone, you get 25 to life and I can commit fraud. I just call it fractional reserve central monetary policy or whatever the new fancy name is. So again, you can take principles they already believe in and just show them that they themselves would be justified in embracing the concept of voluntarism. Not just will they work, that they're violating their own principles if they advocate things like government. Because almost anyone who's trying to do some relative amount of good, you can find that if they advocate the state in any way, it really is a contrary to their own desire. 
All right. Well, again, I'll correct myself. 50 chapters. There's a little something for everybody. If there's anything that you've thought of as kind of a obstacle you can't get past to smaller government or no government, the limited government that I want, zero, then I highly recommend this book. It comes at you from every angle. It deals with just about everything I can think of that's ever been thrown at me. Where's your preferred place for people to get a hold of a copy? Amazon.com has it. There are a lot of people who don't like doing business with Amazon. I'm trying to make it available at other sellers, but it's a little more difficult. So for people that don't want that, they can get a free PDF on odyssey.com. I don't want money to be the reason that anyone is excluded from hearing this important message. So odyssey.com, amazon.com. It's called the Voluntarist Handbook. All right. Well, we'll link to both of those on the show notes page. And Keith, you've done a great job here. I appreciate you putting this together for us and coming on the show to talk about it. Anytime, Tom. Thanks for your time. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.